Ladies and gentlemen, please take your seats. The show is about to begin. Good afternoon. Good evening, everyone. I want to welcome you all to an extra special episode of At the End of the Day. Just a reminder for everyone, this is really a show about the lost art of medicine and for those who are dissatisfied with the status quo of healthcare. As always, I'm Andy DeLeo, better known as Cancer Geek. And today, as always, I've got my two co-hosts with me, a Wes and AJ. Hey, Andy. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, gents. Uh, I'm so excited to, to be here, especially because this, quite honestly, is one of the things that I love about this medium is that when hot topics come out, we can sort of pivot, get to it very quickly and sort of change uh, some of our plans. And so today we're exactly doing that. For those listening that are unaware, last week, Friday, the government, CMS, released what is called a radiation oncology alternative payment model, their final ruling. It's a, a rule that's been long awaited, highly anticipated. And with that, I'm so proud and privileged that we've got a special guest with us today. His name is Sean Prince. For those of you that are unaware of who Sean is, Sean is a expert when it comes to reimbursement, healthcare economics, the changing dynamics that are going on from a, a payment structure inside of the world of healthcare. He's worked both in pharmaceutical side as well as medical device. I've known Sean for quite a few years now, and I am just always impressed with Sean. He's always teaching me something. He's making me see sort of both sides of the spectrum. And so Sean, I'm really glad to, to invite you to the podcast today. And so with that, instead of me trying to introduce you, I'm going to give you a, a couple of moments and just tell everyone that's listening a, a little bit about who you are, what you do, and uh, we'll go from there. Okay, great. Thanks, Andy. And feelings mutual. Always learn a great deal from you as well every time we have an interaction. So uh, a little bit about my background. I graduated from the Ohio State University. I had to get the plug out there for the Buckeyes. Hopefully they'll be out in the field here uh, in a couple of weeks and we'll be progressing towards another national championship. But anyway, my sort of background in reimbursement started uh, shortly after college. Uh, as Andy had mentioned, uh, a bulk of my career had been spent analyzing and reacting to changes in the way pharmaceutical and biologic products were reimbursed by not only the federal government, but also by commercial insurances as well. And then for the past 10 years, I've worked in the uh, medical device arena, specifically in radiation oncology. And that has definitely been a sector of medicine that has been under a microscope in terms of how payers compensate providers for that type of care. That's sort of a little bit about my background. Uh, hopefully that's what you're looking for, Andy. Yep, that's perfect. So with that being said, um, some of our listeners may not necessarily understand with the radiation oncology alternative payment model. For those listening, you're probably going to hear us. Your co-host is included in that too. <laughs> <laughs> you're going to probably hear us switch to the acronym ROAPM just because it's easier. But ROAPM stands for Radiation Oncology 
alternative payment model. So Sean, do you just want to take a few moments and sort of explain maybe what an alternative payment model is and why this has been so highly anticipated in the world of radiation oncology? Certainly. Obviously, I don't think it's any surprise to anybody that here in the United States, we have a bit of a spending problem on our health care. Relative to other economically developed nations, we spend a significantly larger proportion of our GDP on providing health care to our citizens. Some could argue that the quality that is provided is as good or maybe less than what other countries, their citizens receive. So bottom line, uh, CMS is, and, and when I say CMS, I refer to them as uh, CMS as was AKA Medicare. They are in the process of experimenting with different levers that they have available to them in terms of how they compensate for care across the country, at least for the Medicare population. These sort of experiments, if you will, sort of originate in a department within CMS called uh, CMMI, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation. And they've been tasked with coming up with different ways to compensate providers for care that has uh, been delivered to the Medicare beneficiary. At the end of the day, the goal is, uh, or at least the stated goals are to maintain or improve beneficiary care that they receive, but at the same time, hopefully curtailing or saving the system money. And the way they go about doing that is shifting away from the way we currently or historically have compensated providers for care, which would be known as a fee-for-service model. Essentially, that means when you perform a particular procedure or a service, assuming Medicare believes that it's reasonable and necessary, the claim will get submitted and the provider would get compensated for the items that he or she did. The problem with that model is that it doesn't really put a limit on what you can do. So in terms of there's no governor on that. The more things that you do, the more things that CMS believes are reasonably unnecessary, the more a provider would get compensated. So that doesn't bode well for any type of cost containment system, hence these alternative payment models. Does that kind of give you a little bit of a background on what CMS is doing and sort of the levers that they have available to them to pull? What do you think, AJ? Yeah. So as the most unaware of how all of this works in the back and so if I understand correctly, the fee-for-service model is if I come in 20 times, the provider, the radiation oncologist, whoever in the healthcare system can then bill the insurance company 20 times for 20 visits. And now they're switching that to a, a new model. And what is that? Is that correct? And then what is the new model that they're going to? That is entirely accurate. So again, to your point, in a model that compensates providers on a fee-for-service basis, the more things that he or she does providing to the patient, the more things they get to bill for, the higher their reimbursement goes. Under the new alternative payment model, what CMS will be experimenting with is if they change the way that that care gets compensated, moving away from fee-for-service and instead sort of putting a cap on how much they'll pay. And that cap is going to be based upon the patient's diagnosis. So within the radiation oncology world right now, there are a number of different techniques by which you can deliver radiation to a patient. One of those techniques we kind of describe as more of a conventional way about treating a patient. Essentially, you're dividing that total radiation dose into very small sort of daily deliveries of that total dose. They call them fractions. So for example, prostate cancer. When you treat prostate cancer in a conventional fashion, typically that's gonna be probably 40 days of treatment using a technique called intensity modulated radiation therapy. 
Conversely, you could also treat that patient with what's called stereotactic body radiation therapy, SBRT. And what that technique is, you deliver a large dose of radiation over a very short period of time. In order to do so, you need a machine or a linear accelerator that can deliver that high dose very accurately because you obviously don't want to hurt the patient. But under those two models, where when you think about a fee-for-service model, those two techniques reimburse vastly different amounts. The patient that went in 40 times to get treated with intensity modulated radiation therapy, Medicare on average would pay the provider roughly $30,000 to treat that patient. If you were to receive that radiation with a stereotactic body radiation technique, the SBRT, where you're delivering it over five treatment sessions, Medicare pays the provider approximately half under the fee-for-service model. So that individual is going to get $15,000. When you look at the clinical data, the clinical data is pretty comparable in terms of toxicities and clinical outcomes. So when you think about it from Medicare's perspective, they look at the clinical data and they're like, well, this is interesting. It appears, based upon the published literature and the studies that have been conducted, that you get a very comparable outcome in terms of patient survivability as well as toxicities, regardless of the modality that you choose. But one modality pays double than the other. So then you kind of start thinking, okay, what what's right and what's wrong? And how can we potentially modify behavior so that our patients, our beneficiaries, the Medicare patient, they're getting the best value for their dollar. And that's the emphasis of these alternative payment models. So shifting away from the way we've always been doing things, which is fee for service, to one that puts a limit on how much CMS will pay based upon the patient's diagnosis. Sean, can I ask a couple follow-up questions here? Sure. So as a layperson, so CMS is a governing body that is helping to inform the insurance companies and agencies how much a certain procedure should be billed for, correct? I would say that's not definitely not their primary mission. The primary mission of CMS, which uh, is the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Service, is that they manage the Medicare benefit to citizens who qualify for Medicare and such that they're not advising other insurance companies, the commercial markets, anything like that on what they should or should not do. They actually don't don't have any power over what the commercial markets do. But what they are doing is they are designing benefits and what they and deciding what they will and will not cover and how much they will pay for a very large part of our population. And it is oftentimes done in a very public manner because it is a tax payer program. So to say that it doesn't, their decisions and their actions don't have any repercussions in the commercial market would be very short-sighted because it's an open process. They're looking, the commercial insurance companies definitely look to see what Medicare is doing. And sometimes their policies, their coverage policies and their payment policies will align while other times they're completely different. But there's no doubt in my mind that the actions that Medicare takes have direct ramifications uh, on the commercial side as well. They definitely look at what they're doing. From my perspective, this sounds very interesting how this is all working because I've talked in this podcast and personally with Andy and OS about how most people don't realize that we have four healthcare system constructs working in tandem, Medicare, Medicaid, the commercial side, HMOs. We've got so many different systems in place across the whole country. So this is, um, when you say this is a big majority, is it true that a lot of the healthcare expenditures are focused around the last couple of years end of life? And that's where a lot of these decisions are being made to help streamline cost in that manner? 
Exactly correct. Yeah, I, I don't know the percentages off the top of my head, but you can definitely get those. But yeah, there have been a number of studies that have been done that show a large amount of the spend, and, and this is all Medicare dollars. So those individuals that qualify for Medicare, typically it's going to be your person that's 65 years and older, and there's other requirements. But yeah, that's where a lot of money is spent in the last, and not even a couple of years. Sometimes it's even in the last months of life where there's a tremendous amount of money being spent. One could argue or one, and I think people have argued is, you know, at what point in time do you start to think about, is this the right thing for the patient given their unique uh, circumstances in terms of a clinical uh, situation? Maybe instead of trying to treat curatively when there's really no chance of that based upon the existing data and technology, perhaps it's a better more value for the patient to have a more higher quality of life in the last remaining amounts of days or months that they have alive. So it's definitely a, an, an ethical question, but there is a tremendous amount of money that is currently spent in those sort of last uh, time periods of the patient's life. Yeah, that's that's a really good point because I remember in the last few years, Atul Gawande did a, was it a documentary or a video around the idea of the end of life and quality of life and why more doctors don't choose the curative solution at the end of life. They tend to just stay home with their friends and family. They understand that this is what's going to happen. And Andy, if you, if you remember this, but in Wisconsin, the city of La Crosse passed a law about having people of a certain age every year have a living will prepared and then reapproved, reprepared, so that when those end of life decisions are being made, the family can make them and it cut the healthcare expenditure costs of the healthcare systems themselves dramatically because you didn't have people sitting on life support for an extra week while waiting for their son or daughter to come and then the family argues over what their will would be or what they wanted to have done. Do you remember anything about that? Uh, yeah, I, re I remember a little bit about it. I don't remember a lot of the details, but as you're talking about it, it definitely does bring a, a bell with me. So, Sean, just one more silly question from, I feel like, the Columbo in the audience today. How does this translate to someone like myself? Uh, I'm a freelancer, contractor, uh, self-employed business owner. My wife and I pay for insurance out of pocket on the open market here in Minnesota. Would these decisions have any type of ripple effect to something that would potentially, if if one of us were diagnosed with the type of cancer, we would need radiation oncology therapy treatment. Would that have any effect to our world and our reality? I think it will. I mean, it won't be obvious at first because, again, there is no requirement that commercial insurance companies adopt this sort of model. However, with that being said, I think what you would see is of shift in provider behavior. I think when CMS looks at their data, they identify what they believe to be efficient providers and inefficient providers. And this is in the radiation oncology alternative payment model. And by efficient, what they do is they look historically at what they've paid that provider to treat a patient with, say, prostate cancer. And then they compare that historical payment to that provider with 
what they've paid at a national level to treat prostate cancer with radiation oncology. And if you're an efficient provider, you get sort of one kind of payment amount. And if you're an inefficient provider, you get another payment amount. Bottom line, when we look at this sort of the way they've structured this program, I believe that it will be a large influencing factor on how a provider chooses to treat a particular indication. And for example, I'll go back to the prostate cancer. So historically, you get very comparable clinical outcomes from using either that 40-day treatment of IMRT uh, as well as compared to a five-treatment, uh, a five-day treatment of SBRT. And as I mentioned, the reimbursement historically has been roughly half of that. Now, when you look at whether or not that is an inefficient way to spend money or an efficient way to spend money, I would assume that CMS would look at those 40, 45-day treaters as being inefficient and those individuals that have treated in a five-day period of time as being efficient. In order to, I believe, thrive under this new model, if you're a healthcare provider, you're going to want to keep a very laser focus on your costs. To reduce costs, I believe you treat patients in fewer sessions because all else being equal, you're providing them with an equivalent clinical outcome, but it is certainly going to cost you as a provider of care less money to treat a patient in five sessions as it would cost you to treat that same patient in 40 sessions. So again, looking at your own internal costs, the hospital or the provider's costs. So how does it translate or how does that have that ripple effect into the question that you had asked? Like, will it impact you on the sort of the commercial insurance that you and your wife have purchased on the open market? The payment mechanisms will probably be the same. However, when providers start to shift behavior, then I think they're not going to look at, okay, what's your insurance plan? okay, well, I'm going to do this one. And okay, this guy's got this insurance plan over here. So I'm going to use this and do it in however many days. I don't think what you'll see is that I think from a routine perspective and a cost containment perspective and a consistency perspective, I think what you'll start to see is just the sheer number of treatments that, you know, physicians are delivering to patients with radiation. You're going to see that come down and that's going to come down just not only in the Medicare individual, but also it'll have that spillover effect because I don't believe providers are looking at, uh, you know, what insurance plan that a patient has and then making a clinical decision on that. That's not the case. So I think ultimately, even though the payment mechanisms probably won't change immediately, I just think the behaviors of the physicians will change and that will have impact on patients with other forms of insurance. So Wes, I think you've been trying to, to jump in. Do you have a, a question you kind of want to get out there? Yeah, so Sean, thank you for joining us. Uh, it's an honor to have you and sharing your insights with us. I wanted to kind of just clarify one or two things, and then I wanted to ask your advice on one piece of this ROAPM. So for clarification purposes, historically, physicians or practices have been paid under a fee-for-service model, and now we're moving over to this alternative or fixed payment model. So providers are going to get a certain amount based on the indication that they're treating. And if I'm not mistaken, there are 16 indications that are currently going to be in this model. Is that correct? That is correct. Yes. Okay. So now with those 16 indications, how does CMS go about determining what that fixed amount is going to be for these providers or the reimbursement rates? So it is a bit of a complicated process by which they've established the payment rates for these different 16 diagnoses. So the first thing I'll say is that they look at historical claims data and 
this final rate or this final rule, the rates that they used looked at claims data from 2016, 2017, and 2018. So they had three full calendar years worth of, you know, how much they paid, what providers billed them, and how much they paid for radiation therapy. When you look at the 16 diagnoses that are in the model, I believe CMS estimates that it's about 95% of all indications that are commonly treated with radiation therapy are going to be in this model. When you also even kind of distill that down a little bit more, I mean, when you look at breast, lung, prostate, and bone, bone mets, that comprises about 75% of all the claims during that three-year period of time. They look back, they look at, on average, what did Medicare pay providers to treat those patients. Now, they are going to be running a couple of complicated models that I won't really get into, but suffice to say that they are attempting to take into account not only just the diagnosis of the patient and how much they paid providers historically over the three-year period of time to treat those patients with radiation therapy, but they also believe they've identified as several factors or variables that may mean that physician has to give the patient more care, bill for more things, because they're just costlier. They've got sort of variables such as they're getting chemotherapy at the same time they're receiving radiation therapy. They had a surgical procedure within a certain period of time before they started radiation therapy. Their age, their sex. There's a number of these variables that CMS believes influences how much and what services are provided to a patient, and that can impact the cost. So they don't want to penalize providers who maybe take care of sicker patients. So they'll do a little bit of adjustment there. They'll look, as I mentioned earlier, they'll establish an average payment rate that they paid providers across the country on average. Then they look at the historical experience and they say, okay, well, how much have you cost Medicare to treat a prostate cancer or a breast cancer patient? They compare that to the national base payment rate. And then you get assigned an efficiency factor. And again, there's a lot of different gyrations that you have to jump through to get to your final payment amount. Uh, So it's a bit complicated to understand. There is a cheat sheet, if you will, for lack of a better word, that they've posted on the uh, CMMI website. You just need to Google uh, Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation Radiation Oncology Alternative Payment Model. They have a a link to the final rule if you want to read that uh, War and Peace document. Uh, There are uh, fact sheets and there's a list of the zip codes of hospitals and physicians that will be required to participate in the model. So there's a lot of information that you can get on this website. And one of the pieces that you can see or that you can find is the exact formula that they use to calculate your final rate. But a long answer to a short question, Wes, is how they determine these payment rates. They first are looking at, on average, over the three-year period of time, what did they pay providers to treat these, these patients with these diagnoses? Some are going to be higher than what they've paid on average. Some are going to be lower than what they paid on average. And then there's additional withholds that will be taken and quality is going to come into play. How well you treat these patients, the experience that they have. There'll be the requirement for a CAPS cancer survey to be completed. And based upon the scores, you're able to sort of get some additional reimbursements. And then even finally, the model itself will qualify for what 
what they call an advanced alternative payment model. And that means the providers who are in the model would be eligible to participate or to receive a 5% bonus on the professional or the physician component of the reimbursement. All I can say, it's quite nuanced. There's a number of steps to take. And I would certainly encourage you all to read the rules specifically around the section on how how the providers would get paid because the devil's always in the details and that's where the information resides. Hey, Sean, I've got a couple of questions just because you realize I'm not as smart as you are. And so <laughs> I like to to just simplify things in. And I think that might be something that if we kind of walk through might help some of our listeners kind of understand things. So you first started out and explained to us what an APM is, and, and that was really good. So my next question is, is okay, this rule has been sort of finalized. It's now posted. People are analyzing and looking at it. As of right now, when does this rule go into effect and for how long? Right. So um, the rule is slated to go into effect January 1st, 2021. The duration of the model will be five years. Uh, one of the things that I did not mention is there's sort of a mandatory participation. So there is on that CMMI website, there is a Excel spreadsheet that provides a list of the zip codes that are in the model. If your facility where the patient receives the, the, the delivery of the radiation, if that zip code is listed on that spreadsheet, you guys are in the model and subject to this alternative payment model for five years. Now, what CMS estimates is that, and it's almost like a clinical trial, Andy, that they're running. It's, it's very interesting to me. So 30% of all radiation therapy episodes will fall into this model. So those are the ones that if you're in that zip code, you're going to be treating those patients, you're going to be billing Medicare, you're going to be receiving reimbursement under this alternative payment model. The other 70% of the episodes where their, their care is being received outside of those zip codes that are in the model, those uh, providers will continue to receive reimbursement based upon the fee-for-service model that we discussed earlier in the call. What's interesting about it is it's a clinical trial. So you've got a control arm and you've got an experimental arm. Your control arm is your fee-for-service. Your experimental arm is your alternative payment model, the folks that are in the model. There's a randomization of participants, meaning based upon this sort of random selection of zip codes, the provider is either in the model or out. So you've kind of got that particular piece checked off. Then you've got a start and stop date. You've got a five-year period of time whereby at the end of the model, they can look and they can say, okay, did this model accomplish what our stated goals are? And what their stated goals are is does this model, this episodic payment model, not reimbursing providers based upon the modality that they choose, not reimbursing providers based upon the number of fractions or the number of days the patient is treated with radiation. If that all is taken away, can we, meaning CMS, can Medicare reduce the cost or the expenditures on radiation therapy that they spend? Can they preserve or hopefully enhance the beneficiary care, and then they want to also provide predictable payments. So, you know, kind of what started this whole rule was legislation approximately 
seven, six years ago, it was the PAMPA Act, Medicare Protection Act. And what it was designed to do was to stabilize payment rates for freestanding center providers because payment rates were fluctuating year over year. And it was obviously difficult for that cohort to make you know, very sizable investment decisions when purchasing linear accelerators. So they want to make these payments a bit more predictable for providers so there's not these wild, you know, annual swings. So bottom line, those are the stated goals of CMS. And again, this is a clinical trial for five years uh, and to see, okay, are we able to change behavior? Are we able to save money? And can patients still continue to get great medical care? Those are the stated goals. We'll find the answer to that question in about five years. Awesome. So I know you had mentioned that there's 16 diagnoses that are included. I believe you said prostate, lung, breast, bone mets, brain mets. Could you maybe tell us or, or share with us uh, what the other diagnoses are? Yeah, so I'll go in alphabetical order so we won't exclude any one diagnosis. So it's going to be anal cancer, bladder cancer, metastatic bone lesions and metastatic brain lesions breast cancer, cervical cancer, central nervous system tumors, colorectal cancer, head and neck cancer, liver cancer, lung cancer, lymphoma, pancreatic cancer, prostate cancer, upper GI cancers, and uterine cancers. Those are the 16 diagnoses that as of right now finalized and put into the rule. Okay. And I know we were talking a little bit about like treatment technologies. I I know you mentioned something about protons, and uh, I think you were talking about maybe SBRT and conventional Linux. Is there any sort of type of treatment, whether it's brachy um, or IMRT or 3D, that is excluded from this model? When CMS first proposed this model, there was a uh, technique called intraoperative radiation therapy, IORT. That was had been proposed to be in the model, but when CMS finalized the model, that particular modality was excluded. So any provider that treats patients with that particular type of technique, reimbursement at least under the Medicare sort of program, would continue on to be fee-for-service. All of the other commonly used external beam uh, sort of techniques are continuing to be in the model, and that includes Proton. Just as a, a follow-up question to that, I know on one of our previous episodes, we talked about the, the beauty of the Bragg Peak, as well as the expense to Proton facilities. If I happen to be a facility that has Protons, am I excited about this? Am I worried about this? Are there caveats from a, a reimbursement perspective that maybe I should be thinking about or aware of? Let me answer the first question. So if you've got Proton, should you or would you be worried about being in the model if you're selected? I would say that most likely, yes, it's not going to be the best experience uh, for those providers of that care. Now, with the one caveat that what CMS finalized is that there is the potential for providers of Proton Beam Therapy to continue to receive fee-for-service reimbursement for those patients, even if they do or if they are selected to be a model participant. And the way they can continue to receive fee-for-service reimbursement is if the patient is enrolled in a federally funded clinical trial. CMS spoke a fair amount about this in the final rule, 
And I think based upon a lot of tech assessments and reviews of Proton Beam and, you know, what indications is it most appropriate for, I mean, we can all appreciate that Proton Beam is a very expensive modality to provide patients. And I think that CMS is not opposed to paying for expensive treatments. I mean, look at how much they'll pay for CAR-T and, you know, some of these immunologic agents. They're, they're not opposed to it. But I think what they want to see is that there's value in that. By paying a provider more money for a particular technique, does that translate to more value to the Medicare beneficiary? And I think CMS's conclusion on that was there was insufficient evidence to draw any firm conclusion outside of maybe a few indications. So I think this is CMS's attempt to make these participants collect this data to prove that the proton beam treatment is superior to others and as a result should be compensated more. If they can do that, I think CMS has appetite for it. But if the data does not show that it's any better than, say, a photon treatment, then I think it does bring into question whether or not is it appropriate for our society to pay extremely high rates of reimbursement for procedure or a technique that may not yield the value that we would hope that it does. So again, the jury's still out on this. And I think that at the end of the day, this was a good thing that CMS had done. That's my opinion on it and others may differ, but I believe it does do the the job of advancing the knowledge in this particular area. And my hope is that it will prove to be a superior treatment and that we should as a society pay that extra money because our citizens are getting more value for that type of a treatment. So you also mentioned Medicare. And I know for, for me, sometimes I get confused because there's Medicare Part A and Part B, and then there's supplementals, and then there's Advantage, and there's a lot of sort of branded things around that. I know when I looked at the map and saw the zip codes that were highlighted, I I guess from my perspective, I couldn't really tell what it meant. So is it all Medicare or is it just specific types of Medicare that are included within this APM? The beneficiary or the patient that would be included in this alternative payment model is only your traditional Medicare Part A and Part B patient. So any Medicare patient that has opted to enroll in a Medicare, they call them Advantage plans, but they're also known as HMOs, Medicare HMOs, those entities would be excluded if you're treating a patient that's got commercial insurance through Blue Cross, Blue Shield, they don't have Medicare, they would not be in this model. So this model, as it has been finalized, is only going to be specific to those who have traditional Medicare A and B benefits. What if I'm a patient with one of those traditional uh, Medicare plans and I go to, I don't know, let's say like MD Anderson or uh, for your namesake, the James at The Ohio State, uh, are they part of this or are they excluded? That's a good question, Andy. So the large, they call those prospective payment system exempt cancer hospitals. There's 12 of them across the country. As you'd mentioned, uh, there's the MD Anderson, Memorial Sloan Kettering, the James University or the, the Ohio State University, the James Cancer Hospital. Those large sort of PPS exempt cancer hospitals are specifically excluded 
from participating in the model. So if you were a Medicare beneficiary and you were down at MD Anderson receiving your radiation therapy, those claims would, I mean, they're paid a little bit differently and I won't go into all the uh, gory details of that, but long and short, they would continue to be paid under the fee for service. Hey, Sean, Sean, if I'm a Medicare patient or a Medicare beneficiary and I go to my local radiation oncology center, how would I know whether this center is participating within this model and if they're not participating in this model? So you probably wouldn't know if they're not in the model. It would just be you walk through the door and you start your treatment. However, if the facility is in the model, they are required by CMS to provide the beneficiary with a letter that indicates that you know they've been selected to participate in this alternative payment model. There are some you know, more details about what this letter needs to include, but that would serve as the notification to the beneficiary that the they're in this uh, alternative payment model based upon the fact that the provider has been selected. And does this apply only to hospitals or does this apply to freestanding facilities as well? Both settings. So there's, and that's one of the reasons that this whole alternative payment model, not there are many reasons, but this is just one of them. I think CMS was a bit concerned that there are different settings of care. You've got a freestanding center setting, which is kind of like a physician's office and they've got a linear accelerator and they can treat their patients there. And then you also have the hospital outpatient department. The way they're paid or the way the payment is calculated under fee-for-service, it's kind of different. I believe CMS has more faith in the payment amounts established for hospital outpatient departments because that is based upon cost reports that these individual hospitals have to submit to CMS on an annual basis. And they have to certify that, okay, they provided all these services and this is what they estimate it cost them to provide that care. The RVU on the physician side is a whole different animal. It's a little bit more nebulous in a way. And I do not believe CMS has much, I don't know how valid they think that information is. So, you know, at the end of the day, there were instances where the care that was being delivered in a freestanding center was more costly than what was being delivered in the hospital. And we're assuming that it's the same modality, it's the same number of fractions. It's just the way CMS calculates the reimbursement for the different procedure codes in those different settings of care. And that caused CMS to have a great deal of angst because they think that, okay, as a hospital, there's inherently more costs associated with operating that facility than if you're just operating a, you know, for lack of a better word to describe it, a physician's office with a linear accelerator. And when they saw freestanding centers receiving more reimbursement under that sort of payment rate setting methodology than what they were seeing hospitals get paid, that caused them a lot to have a lot of angst. And again, that was sort of one of the many factors that I believe contributed to the development of this alternative payment model. So Sean, when we talk about an alternative payment model, a lot of it usually comes down to like this term of like bundling. I remember back to, you know, my days in the clinic, you know, you've got all these CPT codes, you've got, you know, planning charges, you've got setup charges, you've got daily imaging charges, you've got special medical physics, you've got weekly treatment management. What is bundled exactly within this payment? Yeah, so CMS defines that and they kind of use four different buckets. Um, So they talk about number one would be treatment planning. And this is kind of the activity that 
quote unquote triggers the episode. I think one of the other details that we I haven't mentioned yet is it is a prospective payment system. And, and what that means basically is you're going to get a payment up front, half of the payment up front and half of the payment when the treatment ends. So it's divided into two payments. And the way it's triggered is based upon the treatment planning code. And it's not the the, you know, as you sort of, you know, you, you fuse the image sets together and you identify the target and the, you know, the, the organs at risk and you do all that. That's not the plan. It's, it's, it's that first, it's described as either 77261, uh, 77262 or 77263, which are the CPT procedure codes that describe that activity. But it's the mental thought process that the physician goes through as they're evaluating the patient, trying to figure out, okay, here's their type of cancer. Here's the stage. What technique of radiation based upon clinical guidance out there should I be using. So it's that kind of activity. So that's sort of the the treatment planning aspect of it. And that'll trigger the first sort of the opening start of the episode, if you will. And again, that episode goes out 90 days. So any care that you provide to that patient within that 90-day period of time is theoretically going to be paid for under the bundle couple of exclusions, and I'll mention those here in a second. But long and short, there, the, the other thing that needs to happen, there's, so there's two things that need to happen for the 90-day the bundle to be triggered. The second thing that needs to happen is within 28 days of that treatment planning code, the 77261, 262, or 263 being submitted, there has to be the initiation of the first day of radiation therapy. So they need to see delivery codes within... Uh, or by day 28. And if they don't see that, then they consider the episode as being incomplete. It never sort of fully, you know, happened. There's rules kind of surrounding all that, but you need those two events to occur in order for the episode to be triggered. And again, it'll encompass 90 days worth of care. Now you can get your second payment by signaling to CMS that you've completed treatment. And you can and you can do that on day 28. Let's just say it's a single fraction that you're going to deliver of stereotactic radiosurgery, one session. So obviously, you don't have to let it run all the way out until day 90. You can submit your claim to CMS and say, hey, we delivered one fraction, we're done. And they'll go ahead and remit payment for that second half of that bundled payment for that diagnosis. And again, it's including your treatment planning, your, they call it technical preparation and special services. That's kind of like all your physics, uh, you know, your dose calcs, the 77300, any treatment devices that are going to be needed to be constructed to, you know, to, to, to provide the care to the patient, the MLC, you know, just any of those things that you routinely go, you, you do to provide the care will be in the model. They've got the radiation delivery procedure codes. So, all of those external beam radiation procedure codes are in the model. Not only the CPT codes that are used in the hospital outpatient department, but also any of these sort of HICS-PICS codes that have been created as a result of that PAMPA legislation that froze reimbursement. They're all included in the model. And then finally, the, the treatment management. Literally, pretty much everything that these radiation oncologists do will be in that bundled payment couple of exceptions that I'll just mention uh, quickly here is if you have a neurosurgeon, for example, that is uh, helping with the contouring activities for an SRS treatment, those six series neurosurgeon procedure codes are excluded from the model. So they'll just bill and they'll get paid fee for service for that. Uh, Another item that is uh, not in the model is uh, space orb. 
So if you are a physician or an entity, a hospital provider that is utilizing space or to deliver radiation to prostate cancer, uh, that is excluded from the model. So that would continue to be reimbursed as a fee-for-service item. Uh, So those are the biggies in terms of what's not in the model. But again, pretty much I would say everything that you've been doing is going to be in the model from a radiation oncology perspective. Quick question on this kind of subtopic. So if I'm a patient and I've gone through my course of treatment, and let's say in three weeks, I am experiencing some skin erythema, Um, maybe it's a a side effect, maybe I've got a really bad sore throat and I've got to come back in and uh, maybe they need to do an imaging scan or, or something like that, but it's within sort of this 90 day period of time. Is that going to be paid for or will that be sort of wrapped into this bundled payment. If you're getting like care for toxicities that were associated with the delivery of the radiation, that is all going to be excluded from the bundled payment. So that would be, you know, any medicines that's acquired or, you know, any uh, evaluations, uh, you know, whatever you want to, whatever care is provided to the patient to manage any toxicity, that would be excluded from the bundle. That would be fee for service. But let's say that, you know, a patient has a lung tumor and you treat that lung tumor and then within that 90-day episode, they've got a metastatic brain lesion and you need to treat that as well. If it falls within that 90-day episode from when you know it was first triggered when the physician did their treatment plan and you treated that lung case and all of a sudden they got diagnosed or you know a, a metastatic lesion to the brain appeared, you brought them in and you implemented treatment or initiated treatment, those services would be would, would be included in the bundle. The only time that a second episode would be triggered is after you have ran out the 90-day period. Then there's a what they call a clean claim period, which lasts for 28 days. So if you were to bring the patient back, say on day 95, to treat that metastatic brain lesion, that would be reimbursed under fee-for-service. If you go past day 28 after that end of the 90-day period, so I think that's like day 118, let's say you treat a patient with that metastatic lesion on day 120, that would then be another episode that would be created. So here's kind of how the pattern is. If you treat that metastatic lesion within the 90-day episode period of time, you do not get fee-for-service. You do not get another episode payment. It is going to be subject to that initial payment that you would receive for the lung cancer. If you treat them during this 28-day period after the 90-day episode concludes, you would get compensated under fee-for-service. And then if you treat that patient or bring that patient back after that 28-day clean claim period, so day 118, 19, 20, that would trigger an episode and you would get kind of like rinse and repeat. It would be the sort of the first circumstance when treating that lung tumor. A little bit of a convoluted process. Hopefully that made sense. It did. So Sean, you may not have paid attention to this at the the beginning of the intro, but the reason why we're all here is because each one of us fundamentally believes that healthcare is broken and we need to challenge the status quo and really sort of move into the real world that all of us want, which is medicine. So I'm going to transition this and maybe we're going to ask you some really uncomfortable questions 
Um, but we're going to kind of put you in the hot seat. I know Wes has been preparing some sort of poignant uh, questions. So, Wes, I'll uh, transition it to you. All right. Where's the, uh, the hang-up button on this uh, podcast? So, Sean, I know you had talked about the cuts that CMS proposes. And one of the things that I think one of us may have already asked you, and I think you had mentioned, you know, is this a good thing for the, the industry? And I think you had said, yes, it is. And how are hospitals going to pan out? And you, you think that most people are probably going to see some kind of significant cuts to their reimbursement. What does that translate to, to Andy's point? How does that translate to the patient, right? And again, this podcast is related to patients and, you know, we're talking about the end of one how do these cuts affect the patient? So my question to you, Sean, is if a center is going to experience a shortage in their reimbursement than they have historically experienced, will they be selective in the care that they offer to Medicare recipients versus commercial recipient, commercial uh, insurance carriers? Do you think that there's going to be a delay, uh, a difference in the uh, hospital setting? I hope that there's not. You know what I mean? And I think I think at the end of the day, as I had mentioned before, I think the way to navigate this new model is by focusing your, you have to be laser focused on your costs. You have to manage your costs. Historically, you can kind of bill your way out of this situation, right? I'll just, I'll just, okay, maybe I'll do IMRT as opposed to 3D conformal. I'll get paid more money. I kind of, I, I can bill my way out. There's really no billing your way out of this scenario. Uh, you are getting this payment amount that has uh, an element of your historical performance patterns, an element of what CMS has paid on average for these diagnoses across the country. So you're kind of capped, right? So, you, you know, there's two ways that you can kind of help yourself have a better financial experience. Number one, treat more patients, right? And I think to treat more patients, you can do that by transitioning to what we call hypofractionation, right? So that's just you know, treating the same clinical indication where appropriate with fewer sessions as opposed to longer sessions. Again, assuming that you get an equivalent, you know, outcome clinically, it only makes sense to do that. So you can treat more patients when you do moderate and ultra hyperfractionation compared to conventional, those longer courses of treatment. So that's one way, I think. There's also a quality element to your reimbursement, meaning you have to obtain appropriate quality scoring in order to receive your full amount of reimbursement. So there is an emphasis on the quality that's being provided. And I think, as I had mentioned before, CMS is, it, it, this is an interesting aspect of this rule. One of the, the one that I find the most fascinating, I mean, there's a lot of twists and turns on this thing, but the one that I find the most fascinating is what they're going to be doing is they are going to be tunneling into these patients' electronic health records, and they're going to be extracting data. There's a document on the CMMI website that identifies what information they are going to be sort of extracting. So it's not all this information that they're going to pull, be pulling out is not on the claim form. So they've never historically had access to it. But now with electronic health records, they can kind of go in and extract it. Three of the pieces that I think are just, or, or one of the pieces are, is just fascinating to me, is this, uh, they want to see the DVH, the dose volume histograms for the target and for critical structures. That's pretty interesting to me. I'm like, why is CMS wanting to see that information? And I think this is where 
big data comes into play. And maybe I'm a conspiracy theorist, so you know there's that element here. But I believe that after a while, CMS is going to have a lot of data. One of the crucial pieces of data that they're ha- that they're going to be obtaining is plan quality. How good were your plans? Because what they're going to see or be able to see is, I see that you got treated for prostate cancer. I see that you received IMRT in 30 fractions or 28 fractions or whatever the count was. I've got your, 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 your plan, your treatment plan here. I can tell whether it was a good plan or a not a good plan based upon the DVHs. Then I can look downstream. And when I say they, CMS, CMS can look downstream and identify were there additional costs, toxicities, treatment for toxicities that could be correlated or associated with the treatment that was provided. And at the end of the day, they could simply say, listen, this plan is not acceptable. We're not paying for this. This is not a good plan. I guess a roundabout way to answer your question, Wes, is that there is not just this cap on how much they're going to pay. There's also an element, and one I think that is going to be more and more present, of quality. And if you don't maintain quality, I believe that's going to come back to haunt you financially or haunt the provider financially. It's almost when you think about hospitalizations, surgical hospitalizations. If you bring a patient in, form an operation, that patient's discharged. And I don't know all the details. I'm not, I'm not so much of an inpatient kind of guy here, but my understanding generally is if that patient is readmitted within a certain period of time, such as like 72 hours, most likely they're going to be readmitted due to complications of the surgery or perhaps you, the surgeon left a sponge and it needs to be taken out. Guess what? CMS doesn't pay for that. That's on the hospital. You guys screwed up. We're not paying you money to fix your screw up. I think, and again, I don't know this, so I want to be very clear on this. I, I'm just speculating here. I'm reading the tea leaves. But for CMS to want and collect that data that clearly signals whether the plan was a good or a bad plan, my belief is they intend to do something with that data. And that something is to reward, penalize, good value care being delivered. Hopefully that answered your question. I've been quiet for quite some time, Sean. This is AJ, if you forgot who this was. You you guys, I, I was texting Andy and Wes, you guys dove into a depth that I am out of my league. And all I hear are the numbers for the codes that you you were listing off. But I want to take a step back and kind of in wrapping things up here in our conversation, from a, a bird's eye view, who are the winners with this decision? Who are the losers? And in, in your expert opinion, what are some things for patients to watch out for, to know about, and for healthcare systems to understand and adapt? Because as we kind of all understand it, the one thing that's always constant is the change and the need to adapt to new situations and uh, systems. So how how is a healthcare system and a patient and provider, all of these people in the mix, going to adapt and what, what are the best ways to do that? So I think the winners of this model are, to your point, AJ, the ones that can adapt quickly. And when I say adapt, I believe the transitioning to shorter courses of treatment safely right and with good quality so that is how you adapt and you know that's going to allow you to be in a better position than others the losers are the ones that don't have the ability to adapt to utilizing different treatment techniques that you know if you continue on the 40 45 
sessions for prostate cancer uh, in the face of data out there that would say five fractions or less is or five uh, is, is is as good if not better. You know, you can think about treating bone mets, those that are treating, you know, you're getting a, an equivalent clinical outcome, at least what the data suggests in a single treatment as opposed to 10. So if you don't have the machinery or the equipment or the human resources that are going to allow you to deliver that really focused high doses of radiation short compressed period of time if you don't have the confidence in the machines or the confidence in your staff you're going to you're going to be struggling a bit under this and then i think another you know that that's sort of a, a one that's going to struggle and a, another winner in all of this and, and and one i think that we should always maintain the focus on is the patient I mean, think about it, right? Would you rather go to a radiation facility 40 times or five? You know, I know what I would choose. If I'm getting the same clinical outcome, I want to go five. And, 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 and that translates to cost, right? So, you know, if you think about how the Medicare program operates, beneficiaries have a co-insurance. So Medicare picks up 80% of the tab of what they allow. And then there's a 20% co-insurance that either the patient comes up with or hopefully they have a supplement plan that picks that up for them. But nonetheless, there is the potential for them to have to pay 20%. And I don't know about you all, but I think financial toxicity uh, in the cancer world is a very talked about entity. It's real. Patients are subject to extreme costs out of pocket. And so when you look at coinsurance as being higher for these longer forms of treatment that deliver clinically equivalent outcomes, that's not right. You know what I mean? That's not right. How about, you know, going to the hospital and, and if you're in a, a major metropolitan area, paying to park $20 or $30 per day for 40 days. I mean, it all starts to add up. And so Again, I think that if this does indeed result in a changing in the behavior in the number of fractions or the number of sessions that you deliver to patients, if that change does occur on a large scale basis, patients are going to benefit tremendously from this, from a financial toxicity time, get on back with their life, get back with their loved ones. It's, it's, a, it's a distinct advantage for them as well. I would speak for my other two co-hosts or co-conspirators that having you on was an absolute pleasure. And we think that you're a natural. There's just, you got it down and this was really insightful and really helpful. So we're definitely going to rope you into coming again as a guest. Thank you. <laughs> all right, guys. Well, thanks so much for the opportunity. And it's been a pleasure speaking with all of you. So with that, I'd like to say that's a wrap for today. As always, thank you for so much for taking your time, giving us your attention and listening to us. If you've got any other questions or follow up, you can always tell us the good, the bad and the plain old ugly at at the end pod at gmail.com. And I'm AJ Montpettit on the socials on Twitter and LinkedIn. And I'm a Wes F. Mirza on Twitter. And Sean, since you're on, uh, do you want to share what your... Uh, social is with people i don't know what it is you can find sean prince on twitter as at sean go bucks and as always uh you can find me andy DeLeo, better known as cancer geek on all the social platforms and remember at the end of the day it's all about practicing medicine at the end of one